Welcome to the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. I'm Kian Wong, and in this podcast, Dr. Emma Calgaro discusses her work in improving outcomes and ensuring greater inclusion of the disabled when natural disasters strike. Hi, I'm Emma Calgaro, and I'm a Sydney Fellow at the University of Sydney. I'm a human geographer by trade, and I work with communities to help them uh, be more resilient and to be able to better cope with natural disasters when they strike. And you work primarily in Southeast Asia? Yes, I do. At the moment, I work uh, predominantly in uh, Thailand, Philippines and Cambodia. I also work here in Australia. Something that you're looking at, which sounds fascinating to us, is how we can prepare for disasters and accommodate a lot of people who might be disabled, who might find disasters actually very tricky. Could you explain a bit about this project and research that you're doing? Yeah, so people with disabilities are largely unheard and unaccounted for in disaster management, which is what I focus on. And there are so many different reasons for this. There's cultural issues, there's stigma, discrimination and marginalisation rooted in things that we just take for granted, like cultural and religious beliefs. We see people with disabilities very differently to ourselves. Somehow they're seen as less than, less able to contribute to society. Um, sometimes they're even seen as a tax burden because they're, they need to be taken care of. And so these narratives that we have about people with disabilities and the way we see them then bleeds into society and the way we treat them and that includes in disaster management. So what we see is people with disabilities actually make up 15% of the world's population. So in terms of the Asia-Pacific region, that's about 400 million people. Nearly one in five. That's true. And yeah. yet they're still unaccounted for really and their voices aren't heard when we look at how we respond to natural disasters. And with climate change happening, the disasters are getting worse they're happening more frequently and so we really need to figure out how to help people in society like people with disabilities and not just them but they're definitely one group that just don't have the same support as the general population gets which then gets us into um, issues of inequity and injustice and we need to find ways to reverse that. Were there particular experiences or examples that you learned from, for instance, with that major disaster some years ago now of the tsunami? Yeah, so, I mean, what we've found generally is um, when disasters strike, all they do is essentially open up to us and show us the strengths and weaknesses of communities. And when that happens, we really see how our societies are functioning or how they're not. And in these cases, people with disabilities do fare much worse than the general population. They are two to four times more likely to die during a disaster than fully abled people. And they also worsen pre-existing disabilities. So 6% of all disaster-affected people acquire physical or cognitive or psychological disabilities from the event itself. And so that's only going to get worse. There have been government regulations and also policy initiatives which have tried to address this within the context of disaster management, right? Yes, it does. It's always context-specific. And that's one thing that we know very much so after decades of doing you know, research on, on disasters is context matters people's vulnerability or resilience to different events will be greatly affected by their circumstances right then when it happens. Something I do want to stress though is that we're all vulnerable and we're all resilient to something. It just depends on what hits us and when. 
And so, for example, with people with disabilities, they're usually poorer than the general population. And that's embedded in that sort of cultural setting and that sort of societal setting that I was talking about at the beginning, where for different reasons, they usually don't have the same level of education or access to education that, that most of us do. Even in developed countries, it's worse in Southeast Asia, but even here in Australia, it happens. So first, they, they're locked out of really good education. Secondly, that limits their livelihood options. That then makes them more dependent on people around them to care for them, which then perpetuates that sort of social idea that people with disabilities need to be cared for, or they might be a burden on society. And also with people with disabilities themselves, what we found is um, when doing research and talking to people with disabilities in different countries, including here in Australia, is that they often see themselves as also as not as able to contribute in different ways um, and that comes down to again how society has sometimes treated them so you know they internalize their exclusion mm -hmm. in some ways it doesn't mean everyone's like that but it's sort of a pattern that you do see often and that's something we have to reverse and then you have other people with certain disabilities they see themselves as fully abled members of society who can contribute just as much as anyone else and they can it's just the structures and processes that we have in place in society don't necessarily let them do so. So they're the types of structural issues we actually have to change. So we don't only have to change our mindset of how we see people with different disabilities, we have to change the structures and processes within which we live, how we treat them, are there policies and regulations that support them to get access to the basics. Because at the end of the day, vulnerability and resilience which is basically, if you, you know, it's on a pendium really, mm. you know, it swings one way and the other depending on what hits you. And that's for all of us, not just people with different disabilities. And, you know, we have to find ways to include them more so in society generally to make society more inclusionary. And then the rest will come. Then they will be included and seen as, you know, valuable contributors who are sitting at the table with emergency managers to have these conversations about what they need because those conversations don't often happen at the moment. The emergency services, don't get me wrong, they do a lot and they are trying their best. But often also the models within which they work are also very hierarchical, very structured, inflexible and they generally cater to one set of people who are seen as the general population. But what, when they do that, what happens is most people actually get left behind, not just people with disabilities, because we're all so different and our needs are so different. But it is a big burden on them to try and figure out what different types of people need, and that includes people with disabilities who do have particular needs. But it's understanding what they are and mapping those out. And having that dialogue with people with disabilities sitting down with support organisations like disabled people's organisations, their representative organisations, with health organisations and emergency services and government get them at the table talking because in projects that you know I've done in in Southeast Asia I had one project that started in 2015 and we worked on this project to look at ways of supporting people with disabilities in Cambodia, Philippines and Thailand to better cope with natural hazards. And what we found is by doing that work some of the most simplest solutions can be found and that literally is as I was saying before, getting these different actors to sit around the table and start talking to each other so that the general public and disaster risk reduction actors, so emergency managers, government, understand what people with disabilities go through 
mm-hmm. what their world looks like to them. So they try and, you know, try and put the people who are making decisions about them in their shoes so that they really get their perspective. Once they get their perspective, a lot of these preconceived ideas of people with disabilities needing care or being looked after or they're special or they're somehow so different, that melts away once you actually just get people talking, treating people with respect and and listening to them, not putting them in a box. I think we often put people in a box and that sort of shuts the options down because we like to pigeonhole them. Governments love to do it all the time because it's a way for them to compartmentalise the type of help certain subsets of the population um, will get or how much funding they get and resources they get. But by putting all these boxes, you start cutting people out because people fall through the cracks all the time because human beings don't fit into boxes. We're all so different. So to go on some of these country examples, I mean, could you give an example on how it might have been different, for instance, between the research you found in Cambodia versus Philippines, two different scales of countries. Yeah, and uh, there was actually a purpose why we chose to do those three countries, so Thailand, Philippines, Mm. Cambodia, is because they're all quite different. They're at different levels of development. Mm. They have different Different cultural and religious Mm. (laughs) backgrounds. And we wanted to compare to see if there were any commonalities and differences. And in the end, there were, to be honest, lots of commonalities. You know, a lot of those, the people that we spoke to had very similar issues. We did have differences in the types of communities that we looked at and the types of populations. For example, in Thailand, we looked at people with disabilities generally and in different groups. In Cambodia, we specifically looked at women with disabilities because we wanted to see, you know, was there a difference there between, you know, men and women? Um, And so there wasn't much research done on women, so we decided to focus on them. And also in the Philippines, we looked at particular the deaf community so those who use sign language as their first language Mm. which is therefore a cultural they become a cultural minority within Mm. their in their country and what we found is of course there are differences between different types of disabilities so for example the main things that deaf community members needed for support were they needed information in a completely different format they needed information which was visual because they can't hear. And with us being hearing people, we don't even question the fact that we can hear sirens, we can hear people telling us where to go. We also take for granted that we can read really well. So going back to before when I was talking about Mm. access to levels of education, some people with disability and definitely people who are deaf and haven't been mainstreamed in schools or they don't have deaf schools, you can't take for granted that they can read a piece of paper with instructions on it either. Mm. So that shuts them out. That's another level of communication that they don't have. Mm. So the only thing they really have is interpreters. But then, for example, in the Philippines, there's a massive shortage of interpreters. So how do they, you know, how do they even communicate on it? First, on a daily basis with people who don't have sign language. Secondly, in a disaster situation, they're not going to get interpreters mm. getting because the interpreters are in the same spot Mm. responding to disasters as well. And what we also found actually here in Australia is working with the deaf community is, and I'm sure it happens in the Philippines as well, is that you have family members therefore become the spokesperson for the uh, deaf community member. We heard about experiences in, in Canberra years ago when there was bad fires in Canberra where there was, you know, deaf parents Mm -hmm. and the emergency services were talking to a child and giving a child of like five or six the instructions to their parents 
and the pressure and the, the, the trauma, the stress that creates for that child is also completely unethical and just mm. wrong. But that's what they have right in that moment that they're trying to do what they can, but there's a mismatch because mm. we just don't understand those needs. So, of course, there's deaf community members who have problems getting access to information. There's uh, people in wheelchairs and who have mobility issues that just can't literally get themselves to safe spaces without help. Sometimes emergency shelters usually aren't mm. fitted with a universal design, so the doorways might not be wide enough. There'll be steps, they won't have ramps. Or even if there's two steps, that's still too much for someone in a wheelchair. And, and how does someone in a wheelchair get from their house safely to the emergency shelter as well? So there's transport issues there. A big thing for them was getting access to facilities where they'd be safe. And then you have the blind who have different issues again with being able to navigate. They also can't read, but audio works for them. So audio messages is okay for them, but they can't read any text. So you do have differences between different disabilities, but then the commonalities are again, generally still being poorer. So having less resources to be able to act and react and recover after disasters mm. happen. Again, limited access to um, livelihoods. What we found in Cambodia, for example, with women who had disabilities was that they would have to rely on family members to send back remittances. Fully abled family members after a disaster, after a drought, after a flood, mm. where their crops might be destroyed because most people still mm. work in agriculture and they'd be in some villages. Family members might be able to go outside of the village to different regions to work in factories that's a very common thing to do to you know once a disaster has happened so that they, when their crops have been destroyed and they're still trying to recover but women with disabilities can't do that they don't have they don't have the strength their particular disability might preclude them from actually working in a factory mm -hmm. um, they just literally might not be able to physically do it um, and also again that's that stigma involved still that they're less than you know they're not as able as people which don't have um, disabilities so you know they're they're shut out as well so if they had strong family members to support them fine they could do that but then what happens with women who don't they're left at home stranded in the village they don't have anyone that can come and necessarily help them so they don't have those support networks which then bleeds into economics and economic factors as well. So it's such a multifaceted problem. And that's what actually makes inclusion hard to achieve because inclusion is really embedded in the bedrock of society and how we function. And we have to change the mindset and again, those structures and processes and way of thinking before something really is gonna change. And that's what um, my colleagues and I have tried to do is both here at, in Australia and in Southeast Asia is to look at this problem in this multifaceted way. But as a researcher, we also have issues from, from that perspective because funding mechanisms and you know the way we look at problems, we still have silos there too. So we have development money that we work and work in developing countries. Then we have research funds versus development funds. Development funds don't necessarily want to do research. They want to see action on the ground research funds just want to see research but what we're finding is and we've known this for a long time but still those silos even with the way we do what we do in trying to help communities and build research and go in with a research rich orientated plan that actually focuses on the issues that we definitely know exist instead of going in with preconceived ideas of what we need to do and that's another problem with disasters is that it's usually very reactionary Disaster risk reduction as, as a whole is supposed to look at 
preparedness before, response in the event, recovery, and then go back to preparedness. But we're still, even here in Australia we're st- and in many countries, we're still in the mode of response, 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 recover as quickly as possible. Don't necessarily question, should we be going back to what we had? What we had before, was that good? Mm. We don't have time mm. because people need their livelihoods. They want things to go back to normal. And that's also another problem that we have because there's just not time. In our line of work, we talk a lot about, um, you know, making changes and, and building back better was the, the mantra of the 2004 tsunami that many people might remember. But the reality is on the ground, people just need to get back. Mm. And that's the biggest pressure and governments, you know, give into that and build back the same or maybe mm. worse. Because that's the thing right now, that with a lot of disaster management that you're talking about, and you've suggested this as well, that people would want to get back to normal as soon as possible. But the problem is, of course, we have this backdrop now of um, a climate crisis and natural disasters qualitatively being worse than they used to be. So we don't have normal as such anymore. So in some ways, what you're proposing is that the management of this and the political decision makers on this will have to, one, I suppose, take into account the fact that natural disasters are not like they used to be. They're the new normal. (laughs) Yeah, and and the fact that uh, they have to, what, go down to the ground and get much better sort of grassroots or native wisdom on how to prepare as opposed to planning from above, right? Absolutely. I think it has to go both ways. It has to be bottom up and top down at the same time. And there just, there has to be a space where both types of knowledge and expertise blend. Because even if you have a massive disaster like the 2004 tsunami or, you know, some of the earthquakes that we've seen a lot in Indonesia over the last few Mm. years, and we always think of Asia as the supermarket of disasters because so many different disasters hit them. And that also affects um, the ability of households and communities to respond because if you can imagine, you know, if you're being hit by constant disasters, you're just getting back on your feet and then the next one hits and it'll be different. And, and the needs will be different, the response needs will be different, the recovery needs will be different, but you still only got at the end of the day so many resources at your disposal to recover. Mm. That's why we like to talk about building resilient communities, being able to respond effectively and hopefully one day, if the policies and the processes will us allow, mm. transform every time something hits, we get better. But there has to be space for people to be able to improve their circumstances or even change their circumstances because you know being resilient in itself is is, is not an answer some of the best dictatorship are the most resilient mm-hmm. so it's not just about resilience it's about building stronger communities and more equitable communities so they can cope with the risk because risk is with us mm-hmm. it always has been it's just humans like to we all like to put ourselves in a bubble of safety it's human nature mm-hmm. In society now, we don't have the constant threats that they had hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But we always live with risk. It's Mm -hmm. just how we see that risk. And And also the problem right now, as you're suggesting, is that the challenge might be for these local communities to have the power to actually change how 
the policies respond, right? Absolutely, yeah. And okay. to have a seat at the table mm. and also to have capacity, particularly in Southeast Asia, that's a big problem, having capacity within, say, local government to firstly understand the issues, secondly, to have that institutional knowledge where often in local government there's a high turnover of staff, often people in local government, particularly in, in, in Southeast Asia, aren't necessarily well-educated themselves. It's building capacity within the local system, and that could be the formal or the informal government structures that are at work, because there's both. You know, there's village systems versus, you know, the, the very formalised government structures from the top, and finding ways to build their capacity, build their understanding, but also it's about relationships. It's building strong community relationships mm. so that, for example, people with disabilities or, you know, other minority groups feel that they can trust their local champions mm. who are in government or who are the village heads and feel that they're understood. And can deliver the result they want. Ex- exactly. And that their voice will be heard because often it's just usually a mismatch of expectations too. Misunderstandings about what is needed and mismatch expectations of what should be expected by emergency managers or government or or even ways of looking at the community differently. Could the community function in a different way, particularly within a village setting, that could help people with disabilities or different minorities cope better and fit in better? But again, that all comes down to that exclusion and inclusion paradigm, that, that base level of, of functioning and how, how a society works. And that's where we need to start to change those conversations. But they're the hardest ones to change. Does it matter much that, for instance, the three countries you looked at, Thailand, Cambodia, the Philippines, have also somewhat different levels of either authoritarianism or democratic structures in place? Because we've had a lot of different changes there. Yes, it can do. It doesn't always make a massive difference. It just depends on what's happening on the ground. It can change from you know village to village, province mm. from province. If you have a good visionary in government they will help work with the system to bring about the change that's needed and the support will come mm. whereas if you have other people who are you know more narrow-minded or very set in their ways or have their own agendas which don't necessarily they might not necessarily be in line with the communities or certain subsets of those communities then you'll always have problems so you know it comes down to the quality of governance too it's the type of regimes and the structures, but it's also the quality of the people who are sitting at the table. And finally, how do you think some of this can be addressed in the immediate sort of practical terms? Is it a policy fix or is it really more this uh, more nebulous community discussion that you're talking about? It's actually both. Because it's such a complex problem and there's so many different facets to the issue, what we found, and over decades of research in sort of disaster management, vulnerability and resilience, thinking, which again just looks at strengths and weaknesses of communities, mm. what we found is you can't just attack one thing. You can't just look at early warning systems just in isolation. You can't just look at governance in isolation. Mm. You can't just look at improved knowledge about people with disabilities' needs all these different facets need to actually happen at the same time and that's why it's so important it's complex and it's hard and it's hard to get funding because again those silos of research and action but that doesn't matter at the end of the day we know for sure that research can play such an important role into informing action on the ground that's actually needed and appropriate and so if we can 
find ways to marry research and knowledge creation with action on the ground in all of those different areas, which is a lot. So looking at the social, the economic, the governance structures, the more cultural and social aspects of how community really works. So those cultural norms, those social norms, just the way we think mm -hmm. about problems, they all have to be brought together at once to really make a change. But it's happening. There is hope and it is happening. There's different um, organisations out there that are seeing the problem in a lot more holistic way, which is what I've been talking about, to see it as a big jigsaw puzzle, but to see it as the pieces are being interconnected because you can't just do one thing. You have to make sure all those pieces are starting to align and work together. And of course, things happen at different speeds. So some things you can do quite easily, like building capacity and knowledge. You can actually do that quite easily. It doesn't always take a lot of effort. Governance structures are harder to change and also the biggest thing is people's mindsets and the way we look at things, but it is possible and as long as approaches and the way we look at these issues and, and act on these issues is starting to happen at once and taking all these different aspects into consideration at the same time, knowing that some issues might be slower to change and others will be quicker. But if we start seeing all those pieces of the puzzle coming together and start doing something with each of those pieces, we will get change. Thanks, Emma. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.